Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in the Historico Galley section of Melbourne, Florida. It's also made possible by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, the Celery City String Band will perform at the Sam's House Pioneer Day in Merritt Island. They kept moving south, looking for sunnier climes, work, places to make a living, and the music always came with them. We'll discuss the legacy of businesswoman Caroline P. Rossiter. It was uh, unusual for women to uh, not only own her own business or be involved in business, but they'd be involved in the oil business, which was a very male-dominated industry. And we'll find out about Venereal Disease Month, which was celebrated in Florida during World War II. That and more ahead on Florida Frontiers. This beard may be stubborn like a cut over sugar cane field. His clothes may be dirty. But the look in his eyes lets you know he won't heal He's from a breed that has died But he has survived The world he once knew is gone He's an old cracker cowman Existing a long way from home Patrick Smith's 1984 novel A Land Remembered remains one of the most popular Florida books ever written. Patrick Smith passed away on Sunday, January 26th. The beloved author was the first guest on this program when we started five years ago, and we visited Patrick Smith recently to ask him how he was doing. Up and down. Sometimes good, sometimes not so good. But I still can't get up, you know, and get around. Most popular novels have a year or so of good sales, maybe getting another boost when a paperback version comes out, but Patrick Smith's A Land Remembered has been a bestseller in Florida ever since it was first published in 1984 by Pineapple Press. You know, that's hard to understand sometimes. Every year it gets more and more readers instead of, like you say, stopping and really gaining with young readers most of the schools in Florida now teach it. And the young kids, they really like it because they had no idea that Florida was ever like its pictured in the land remembered. And another thing they say is, before they read this novel, they never knew what those words, family values, meant. Because people today don't live like they did back then, you know, close to each other. And it's changed their lives according to what they say. It's been a surprise to me. The novel A Land Remembered follows the fictional McGivey family for more than a century from their arrival in Florida in 1858 through 1968. The family struggles at first to live off the land but becomes very successful in the cattle industry. The last generation covered in the book loses connection with the land, selling it off for development. Of course, in the novel, the last of the McGivey. Saul is the one who really, uh, what do you call it, progress, built all those structures and everything and came to regret it. So before he died, he 
gave a lot of land to the state to be preserved forever, his wildlife preserved. So he, he regretted what he had done. No one family experienced everything that the McGiveys did, but almost everything in the book did happen to one pioneer family or another. Patrick Smith. Of course, that, that book is not based on one family. The characters are composites of different families, but it happened, yeah. Patrick Smith has had success with other books, including The River is Home, Alapata, and The Beginning. His novel Angel City was made into a film starring Paul Winfield, Jennifer Jason Lee, and Ralph Waite. Patrick Smith. It's seven novels altogether, but um, only one of them really was as popular as The Land Remembered. That was Forever Island. It was. It's been published all over the world. There's not too many writers left in Florida, I don't think, who've been at it as long as I have. My first novel, The River is Home, was published in 1953. Over the period of time from then to now, I've written a total of 10 books. I know that's not a lot of books, but you know, I did it at the same time I held down a full-time job, and that makes a lot of difference. Patrick Smith, author of the extremely popular Florida novel A Land Remembered, passed away on Sunday, January 26th at the age of 86. Old Bone Mizell, he's gone, but the legend lives on. Jake. Summerland, an old Sam Key, beginning and ending of an era now gone. Men like Doc Norman somehow let the bottle get them down. These old Florida cowboys are like eagles tied to the ground. And dirt bikes scream over land. That used to be scrubbed out trails And interstate highways have taken the place Of old Mr. Flagler's rails And condos rise from the land And space shuttles fly And the old cracker cowmen don't know how it all passed them by. That was Frank and Ann Thomas performing the song Cracker Cowman. Author Patrick Smith lived on Merritt Island just a few miles from the John H. Sams Homestead and St. Luke's Episcopal Church, which Sams helped establish. On Saturday, February 8th, the historic Sams House and St. Luke's will present Pioneer Day. The event features a variety of educational displays, vendors, and entertainment, including the Celery City String Band. The Celery City String Band takes their name from the city of Sanford, Florida, one of the places where they perform regularly. Following the Great Freeze of 1894-95, which killed most of the citrus in North and Central Florida, farmers in Sanford had great success with celery. 
The name Celery City stuck in Sanford until the mid-1970s. The Celery City String Band consists of bass player Chuck Bowes, dulcimer player Linda Bowes, Dara Fluno playing guitar and mandolin, fiddle player Marie Cashin, and banjo player Jay Bradbury. The group is modeled after a traditional Appalachian string band, Jay Bradbury. And this music comes from uh, North Carolina, southwestern Virginia, Virginia, Tennessee, Kentucky. That area in there was, was where uh, the uh, Celtics, when they came over from Scotland and Ireland, originally in the early, uh, 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 late 1700s, early 1800s, they migrated to the mountains, most of those folks, because the uh, elite landowners, they lived down in the flatlands where you could actually make some money, and these folks were kind of chased off to the mountains where folks didn't bother them much. And, uh, and the Scots, who then the Whiskey Rebellion, I think it was in the late 1770s or so, the, the Federals wanted to tax them, and they, the only thing they did was make whiskey. And so they kind of got chased out of western Pennsylvania and uh, moved down into further down the mountains and so they could choose to make their livelihood. They would grow corn and store it in a jar, and uh, that's how they sold it. So uh, a lot of this music comes out of, of uh, tales and, and, and uh, just telling uh, folk tales about what's going on in the mountains. While the music the Celery City String Band plays originated in the Appalachian Mountains, it has become a part of the Florida folk music tradition as well. As settlers from the north moved to Florida in the early to mid-1800s, they brought their music with them. They kept moving south, looking for sunnier climes, work, places to make a living, and the music always came with them. So, uh, so and a lot of this music down in Florida came as far as Ohio and Pennsylvania. I mean, playing an old-time tune on the fiddle was not exclusive to the mountains of Appalachia. They did it in New England and Quebec, and tunes were different, but they did it really primarily to get together and play for dances. That was their primary. Other than storytelling and doing some ballads and stuff to pass on tales of the earlier years, their kind of economic function was to play for dances. And uh, and so that music easily came to Florida and followed folks as they migrated. Florida folk music has come to embrace a wide variety of styles. There are stories behind every song that the Celery City String Band plays, including the Civil War song Lorena. Fiddle player Marie Cashin. Well, Lorena um, was actually written in Ohio by a minister who was in love with one of his parishioners and planned to marry her, and he, he was all agog. And and uh, she became wooed by a local senator who had a lot more money than the <laughs> minister. And she and her parents decided that maybe she would rather be married to a politician than a minister. And she jilted him, and he became so distraught, he gave up his congregation, gave up the ministry, sulked for years, and he wrote this song. And he called it Lorena to protect her anonymity and took the name from... Uh, uh, Edgar Allan Poe's poem, uh, Lenore. So it's a derivative of the word Lenore. Uh, but when uh, the Civil War broke out, this tune, of course, had been sung for quite, a, quite some time. It was one of everybody's favorites, and they started singing it around the campfire and uh, in the camps at night, and somebody would break out a fiddle or a banjo, and they would go into playing Lorena. And the last two years of the war, 
this tune was banned on both sides because they would get up in the morning and half the troops had uh, absconded and gone home to their loved ones from homesickness after having played Lorena. So, um, yeah, we're not supposed to play it, but in actuality they played it quite a bit. So it's one of our favorites, but we play it a little peppier because <laughs> we're, afraid we'll, we're afraid if we play it all slow and sing all the words, we'll look up and the audience will be gone. So, <laughs> so we pep it up a little bit and make it into more of a happy tune. <laughs> music has been enjoying a resurgence in popularity in our popular culture, including films such as Inside Lewin Davis, groups like Mumford and & Sons, and even the Tony Award-winning musical Once. Well, we found one thing we like about the music is, is that this kind of music cuts across all barriers, racial, ethnic, economic. Um, it's amazing that how many people relate to this. And for many years, I was a, an administrator in a school in Orange County, East Orange County, in a primarily Hispanic population. And uh, I wrote a grant to the, the, you remember the man Fish? Well, I wrote a grant to the, to the Fish Foundation, and they gave me enough money to buy 23 lap dulcimers and, and kits. I had to assemble those puppies. And uh, so I spent a summer putting together instruments and uh, started a lap dulcimer band after school in my, in my school. And uh, I taught over 200 Hispanic children to play the lap dulcimer. And the most amazing thing was how quickly they took to it. And, and uh, one day we, we were playing Angeline the Baker at full speed. And uh, two of the little kindergarten kids just jumped up and spontaneously started flat-footing. I thought, whoa, they just never seen it. But it, it touched them. And, they, and next thing you know, they're, and they were this cutest thing. So... Um, we like to disseminate the music, pass it on to the next generation, and, and keep it going. The Celery City String Band will be performing as part of Pioneer Day at the Sam's Homestead on North Merritt Island, Saturday, February 8th. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org and like us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. When I was 23 years of age, I began my service as a Standard Oil Commission agent in O'Galley, Florida. I succeeded my father in this position who distributed Standard Oil products by runboat up the Banana River to the area that is now Cape Kennedy. 
My father would anchor in the river and settlers would meet him in rowboats to exchange gasoline, kerosene, and motor oil for fish, palmetto berries, and alligator hides. That's Marion Marsh as businesswoman Caroline P. Rossiter in the theatrical presentation Female Florida, Historic Women in Their Own Words, performed as part of the 25th annual Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities in Eatonville. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Educational Resources Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, of all the women in this production, Zora Neale Hurston, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, and Mary McLeod Bethune, Carrie Rossiter is probably the least well-known. Who was she? Well, Caroline Postel Rossiter was a native Floridian. She was born in uh, Jacksonville, the oldest daughter of James Wadsworth Rossiter and Ella Maud Rohera Rossiter. She was born in 1898 and moved with her parents to the small community of O'Galley, Florida, uh, in 19, uh, somewhere around 1902 to 1905. And at that time, O'Galley was a very small rural community, essentially on the, on the edge of the earth, as she, as she once explained it. Um, and her father was involved originally with the Florida East Coast Railroad, uh, which ran along the east coast of Florida. Uh, and they situated, or they decided to to move to Brevard County uh, because her father got involved in the commercial fishing business, and he actually started his own commercial fishing company, uh, the Rossiter Fish Company. Uh, he, Caroline ended up having uh, four siblings. She had a younger uh, sister. Um, and three younger brothers, and uh, and they grew up in this uh, very rural, uh, sort of backcountry uh, Florida environment. Now, in 1921, uh, Carrie Rossiter took over her father's Standard Oil Agency, and this was just months after women received the right to vote, and it was very unusual for a woman to run a business in that time period, and there's a great story about uh, how Carrie came to take over her family business that she used to tell. Yeah, that's right. It, uh, it's a really interesting story. Tragically, of course, her father died in 1921, uh, and Caroline was only in her early 20s, and being sort of the, the oldest of, of her uh, her four siblings, uh, she felt obligated to uh, help out and, and take over uh, her father's business, which at this time was uh, as an oil distributor uh, in Brevard County. Uh, so you, you had mentioned that uh, it was uh, unusual for women to uh, not only own her own business or be involved in business, but to be involved in the oil business, which was a very male-dominated industry. Um, so she actually traveled to Louisville, Kentucky, uh, to meet with uh, the, the head honchos, if you will, sort of the managers, and, and uh, with Standard Oil Company, and, and sort of pled her case, and, and uh, she was asked to wait outside. Uh, well, as, as, she, as Caroline Rossiter told the story, she waited outside and then put her ear to the keyhole of the meeting room and uh, heard the men arguing, and uh, finally they said, well, you know what, just give the little lady the, uh, the opportunity, she'll fail in a few months. And you know we can give it to a man, but we'll, we'll go ahead and indulge her for a few months. Um, what's what's really amazing is that she, uh, you know, lasted in that in that industry as the uh, uh, oil distributor for for this part of Brevard County for over sixty two years. And in the FHS archive, uh, you have uh, a lot of Carrie Rossiter's papers and photographs. That's right. We actually have about uh, about twelve hundred documents. A lot of them relate to her her business dealings. She was. Uh, as I mentioned, she was uh, an oil distributor for 62 years. She was a landowner. She uh, had a number of citrus uh, citrus groves. In fact, she was also a, a, one of the, the few female members of the Florida Cattlemen's Association. She had uh, a few herds of cattle. Um, 
And uh, one of the, the more interesting uh, of the uh, documents that we have in the collection that we're actually looking at today is a letter from uh, then sitting president of the United States, Ronald Reagan, who in 1983 wrote a, a personalized letter to Caroline Rossiter congratulating her on her achievements and, and her retirement in, uh, in 1983. So it's a really unique item and, and uh, again, just kind of goes to show you how influential she uh, was not only in, in women's history but in Florida history. Uh, can you uh, read the letter for us? Sure. Uh, it reads, uh, Dear Miss Rossiter, congratulations on your retirement. Yours has been a career marked by dedication and achievement. You should take great pride in your many years of accomplishment. Nancy joins me in wishing you continued happiness and enjoyment in the years ahead. Sincerely, Ronald Reagan. Great. Now, the, the Florida Historical Society also manages the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens, uh, and Carrie lived there until the end of her life, right? That's right. I mentioned that uh, she moved from Jacksonville in the early 20th century with her family. And her father built this beautiful uh, Yankee Victorian style home uh, in, in the downtown O'Galley area. But it was actually attached to a few existing structures. The, the property itself started with an old slave cabin that was left over from the first, one of the earliest settlers and the first settler of O'Galley, a man named John Carroll Houston, who built uh, a few slave cabins. Well, uh, it sort of passed uh, through a number of hands over the years, and they built another structure onto the slave cabin. And then James uh, W. Rossiter uh, moved down to O'Galley, bought the property, and decided to move another house to that property and connect it to the house. So it's really unique structure. So there are three separate buildings that are attached through a series of, of breezeways. Uh, and it's a, it's a fascinating little piece of, of Florida architecture that kind of take you back through, uh, through 19th century Florida. Uh, it's, it's a, a fascinating, uh, um, uh, fascinating visit. Great. Well, thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Educational Resources Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Our house is a very, very, very fine house With two cats in the yard Life used to be so hard Now everything is easy because of you This is Florida Frontiers. Believe it or not, the state of Florida once celebrated Venereal Disease Month. Robert Casanello from robertcasanello.com has more. Without a good cure for syphilis, the armed forces were, was losing a lot of manpower to the disease. And so it gets placed in a context of being the enemy. Syphilis becomes the enemy as much as the Germans, as much as uh, the Axis powers. And it, therefore, the federal government feels, and the state government feels, at liberty to intervene in people's bedrooms, intervene in people's sex habits, to win the war. And that is very explicitly stated in the propaganda that's put out. That was Dr. Claire Strom, Repetti Trunzo Professor of History at Rollins College. And she spoke to me about why local, state, and the federal government was so interested in sexual health during World War II. Dr. Strom tells me where this effort got started. 
you know, there is some interest in sexual public health during around World War One, but it really seems to die out post-war as I think uh, people start to focus on other issues, uh, economic issues with the Great Depression. And I certainly think that, that sex uh, in general becomes much more prescribed. People don't want to have children uh, because of the restrictions placed on them by the economy. That changes, of course, with the outbreak of uh, World War II, which not only revives up the economy of the country, but also moves large numbers of single men around the country in very exciting ways if you're if you were of that age group. So you now have uh, large numbers of single young men placed into populations where they weren't before. There's a sense of excitement, uh, a sense of danger, um, and all of this, of course, leads to a lot more sex. Dr. Strom researched Florida's response to public health during World War II. She located a number of measures enacted on the state and local level to combat venereal disease. Well, it's interesting. In um, January 1944, Florida declared that State Venereal Disease Month, which I can't imagine the state of Florida doing today. And the state invested a lot of energy and money in promoting testing for venereal disease and treatment for venereal disease. And they did this in, in a very unjudgmental way, I think, in some ways, in some respects. They set up prophylactic stations in all the main towns uh, in Florida where, you know, there was no judgment there. They dropped flyers in rural communities from airplanes uh, telling people that they should get tested and how uh, they could be treated. Um, They put up a tent in downtown Tampa where doctors tested and treated patients. Here, Dr. Strom explains how the state and federal government approached this new public health initiative. You know, the only kind of stigma, I guess, that you see uh, very clearly in this this literature, this propaganda literature, was uh, really against uh, young girls, that somehow it was their fault if uh, the soldiers and sailors got venereal disease. But there was no discussion about morality in any broader sense about whether the state should embark on this. And there was no discussion about whether... the this was the state's place. There's no kind of, uh, this is an infringement on individual liberties. That discussion didn't take place. I want to know the long-term impact of these policies in Florida. Dr. Strom tells me about its judicial and legislative legacies. Certainly, it has a long-term impact. Um, Before the war, there was no law in Florida prohibiting prostitution. Uh, That law comes in in 1943 to facilitate this campaign, and it doesn't go away. A number of women sued for, uh, because when they were arrested and put in prison, they didn't have a right of habeas corpus. A number of women sued the state and said that this was a breach of their civil liberties. They lost those lawsuits on the basis of the public good. So we do see a growing sense of what public health means and that the state can uh, abridge individual rights uh, to, on behalf of the common good. So we see that, that needle moving more towards the public good, and that has never gone back either. That was Dr. Claire Strom, and I'm Robert Casanello with Florida Frontiers. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. 
Be sure to join us right here again next week. And until then, visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org and follow us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Florida Frontiers is also now a newspaper column in Florida Today newspaper. Check it out on Tuesdays or online. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brookmarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in the Historico Galley section of Melbourne, Florida. It's also made possible by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.